Hebrews chapter 1, and especially I draw your attention to verse 4, though we are considering all of the rest of the chapter as well tonight. The verse 4, concerning Jesus Christ, we read, being made so much better than the angels, as he hath by inheritance obtained a more excellent name than they. The more excellent name is what we consider tonight. You'll notice there are two parts to the verse. There is, first of all, the assertion that Christ is made so much better than the angels. And then there is the evidence of that, the proof of that. He hath by inheritance obtained a more excellent name than they. And then Paul brings in those seven Old Testament texts as proof of what he says about this excellent name that Messiah has. So we're thinking tonight about the excellent name. That name which is over all other names. That name which is the highest name. The only name, the Bible says, in heaven and in earth. And there is no other name. The name above all names. Why is the name important? Well, it is important for our faith in Christ. We have to know the excellence of the name. Because we put our faith in the name. The name is who he is. Whosoever shall call upon the name of the Lord shall be saved. So we have to know the name to put faith in it in order to be saved by that name. And here the apostle is reminding us of the excellent name. You'll see that he brings in the angels being made so much better than the angels. Why does he bring in the angels? It seems strange to us. He has already described the divine dignity of the Son of God in verses 2 and 3. He's already told us he's made the worlds. He upholds all things by the word of his power. We might well ask, why does he have to say then that he's better than the angels? If he made all things, he made the angels, and therefore he must be better than angels. In fact, more than better than angels, he must be the best, even as God himself, who hath made all things. So it seems rather strange that the apostle would have to say, better than angels. But he does say it. And the reason why he says it is because of the humiliation of our Lord Jesus Christ. Because the Lord Jesus Christ was made flesh. He became man. And he dwelt among us. And you'll notice the last two points that the apostle makes before he says this in verse 4. He says, he had by himself purged our sins. And he sat down on the right hand of the majesty on high. And those two things he did as man. 
Now he created the world as God. He made all things as God. But when he purged our sins, he did it as a man. And when he sat down at the right hand of God, all the angels saw him. And they saw a man sitting down at the right hand of God. So the manhood of Christ is coming to the fore in those last two things. The humanity of Christ is very visible. And there are those who are quick to point out that Messiah is a man. And a man is less than an angel. And as a man he was made a little lower than the angels. We read Psalm 8 tonight. He was made lower than the angels. In fact the apostle even goes on to say so in the next chapter. We see Jesus who was made a little lower than the angels. For the suffering of death. You see he was made man. He was made a little lower than the angels. Whenever he walked on this earth. And he suffered on the cross. Which none of the angels ever did. None of them suffered on earth. And so in that respect he was lower than the angels. For the humiliation of the cross. And for the work of our salvation. And so we see a man. And he appears lesser than angels. Whenever he hangs upon the cross and dies. As a man he died. And as a man he sits at God's right hand. And people see a man, and angels see a man, and the church triumphant in heaven sees a man there on the throne. But even as a man, he is made better than angels because of an inheritance, because he hath by inheritance obtained a more excellent name than they. This is as a man, even as a man. Yes, he was made man, but in being God-man, God has ensured that he, along with his humanity, receives an inheritance. An inheritance that will go hand in hand and parallel with his humiliation. An inheritance befitting his dignity. Not as mere man, but as the God-man, as the Son of God. And so the inheritance that he receives, along with his humiliation, is this excellent name that nobody else gets. He's received a name, which is God's testimony to him that he is not a mere man. The key word in verse 4 is name. Now the first four verses are one long Greek sentence. And the very last word of that sentence is name. The apostle has been working up that long sentence to come to the name that he has. This excellent name. That's the main thing about this Christ. God has given him a name. God hath highly exalted him, as Paul says in another epistle, and given him a name which is above every name. And these Old Testament texts the apostle brings in to prove that, that he has this name. And so the God-man is spoken about in all of these seven texts that the apostle brings in. And in them we see the name, the excellent name. 
that is above all other names. And no mere creature can have this name. This is a name that is divinely glorious. This is a divine name. No creature could ever have it. And in a sense, it's one name. The apostle uses the singular. Verse 4 says that. An excellent name. But in another sense, it's a manifold name. It's many names. But they all amount to the same. To the one name. You remember Isaiah 9, verse 6. What did the prophet say? Unto us a child is born. Unto us a son is given. And his name. Singular. One name. His name. But then he goes on to give a list. His name shall be called Wonderful Counselor, the Mighty God, the Everlasting Father, the Prince of Peace. Just the excellent name, but the prophet gives at least five names there that define and describe that excellent name that this child has, this son given birth. The apostle didn't use Isaiah chapter 9 verse 6. He used seven other passages mainly from the psalm that we consider tonight. So let us then see the name God has given to this man, Jesus Christ, which he has not given to angels at all. And the first, of course, is the name Son. He's been given the name Son. Verse 5, Unto which of the angels said he at any time, Thou art my Son, this day have I begotten thee. And again, I will be to him a father, and he shall be to me a son. He's my son, God says. He's a son to me, and I am a father to him. Was ever an angel addressed like that? This is what the apostle is saying. Did he ever say that to an angel? Thou art my son, today have I begotten thee. No angel ever heard that. These two quotations prove that. Psalm 2 and 2 Samuel 7. The Lord says, I will declare the decree. The Lord hath said unto me, Messiah says, Thou art my son, this day have I begotten thee. And then you remember how the Lord came to David and said to David, I, I raise up your seed. He's going to sit on a throne that will never end. And I'll be a father to him. And he'll be a son to me. He's got that name by inheritance. The angels never got that name. A son. My son. My only son. Now the divine sonship of course has nothing to do with the humanity of Christ. The Lord Jesus is a son of God eternally. And he is a son of God even before he was made flesh and dwelt amongst men. God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son. He sent his son. But whenever he became man, God wanted to declare it. God wanted it to be beyond doubt. So that even as a man, he was still the son of God. The only begotten. And so being made man does not change that. It is a unique and special relationship that exists only with the Father and the Son and no mere creatures enjoy it. It is true that angels are called sons in a lesser sense but the word is always in the plural. 
We read that the sons of God come to present themselves before the Lord. That's the angels, the sons of God. We read that the morning stars sang together and all the sons of God, they shouted for joy. So by creation they are sons of God. But it's always in the plural and they're all the same. But this is my son. And I'm a father to him in a very special, unique way that is altogether different from the relationship between God and the creatures. This is a relationship in the Godhead, the Father and the Son. And so God declares him to be my son. And you read in the scriptures that he made this declaration at the baptism. Whenever the Lord Jesus was baptized, there came a voice from heaven saying, Thou art my beloved Son. And then you remember on the Mount of Transfiguration, Peter says, He received from God the Father honor and glory. When there came that voice from the excellent glory, This is my beloved Son, in whom I am well pleased. He got that declaration as part of his inheritance. So there'll be no confusion. So that it'll be known he's better than angels. And then at his resurrection he got it as well. Because he was declared to be the son of God. By the resurrection from the dead. And then at the right hand of God. When he sits down there. God says to him. Thou art my son. Thou art my king. I have set thee on my holy hill of Zion. I will declare the decree, Thou art my Son, this day have I begotten thee. Ask of me now the heathen, and I'll give them for thine inheritance. He's a Son, the divine Son, the beloved Son, the only Son, the Son of God raised from the dead, and now at the right hand in the heavenly places having all power and dominion. Yes, the Lord was made flesh. Yes, the Lord humbled himself, but the Father safeguarded his divine glory, even when he was veiled with flesh, by maintaining with his own mouth the Son's excellent name. My son, son, divine son, only son of God. And so that's part of this excellent name. No angels have that. You may see a man on the throne. You may see the wounds in his hands and in his feet. You may see the scars on the brow. You may see the pierced side. But there's no way he's less than angels. All was better than angels, even as a man, because he has the excellent name by inheritance. In verse 6, we have another name. When he bringeth in the first begotten into the world, he saith that all the angels of God worship him. And we read verse 7 and keep it together with that. And of the angels, he saith, who maketh his angels spirits and his ministers a flame of fire. 
What does the apostle say here? The angels are just spirits. He maketh his angels spirits. He maketh his angels ministers. They're ministers of fire. They're a flame of fire. They're ministering spirits. He says it again in verse 14. Are they not all ministering spirits sent forth to minister for them who shall be the heirs of salvation? There's no doubt that the angels are mighty. They're powerful. They're a flame of fire. They're instruments of powerful judgment. But they worship the Son. Worship Him, all ye angels. God commands them to worship the Son. And this is as man, because you will notice it is when He's brought into the world. Did you see that? When He bringeth in the first begotten into the world. Whenever He was brought into the world, He was visible. He was appearing as a man. He was appearing as a little baby in the manger. He was appearing as a crucified one on the cross. When he's brought into the world. And even then when he's brought into the world. The angels are told worship him. Worship him. Now Christ was one occasion he's been brought into the world. And he's coming in again into the world. In a future occasion. In the second coming. So there are two comings. Uh, This likely has reference to the first coming. Uh, We know that whenever the Lord Jesus was born, all the angels were there. There was a multitude of the heavenly host. They were praising God. They were saying glory to God on the highest. And at that time, they probably worshipped Christ, the Christ child, even as he lay in the manger. And at the second coming, it will be the same. He comes with his angels. They come to minister. They come as flames of fire in judgment because he's coming in fiery judgment. He gather all things that offend with his angels through them. And so they are his ministering servants, workers that do his bidding. And the Father commands them not only to obey the Son, but commands them to worship him. To worship him. So he's not less than angels if if that man is worshipped by them. And the reason why he is worshipped by them is because he has this excellent name, not only of son, but you'll notice another name here, the first begotten. When he bringeth in the first begotten into the world, you angels, you worship him. He's the first begotten. You have to worship him. Even as man. Even has veiled with flesh. He's the first begotten. And you have to worship him. Now this does not mean that he was first made. You must not think in order of time. Whenever you think about this word first begotten. We think time whenever we think first. But there is a first in dignity. A first in priority. A first in authority. And that's the way that. Uh, the apostle is using the word here. So it does not mean that he was first created. He was first made as Jehovah Witnesses so wickedly assert and so blasphemously say. He cannot be the first created because he made all things. And there's nothing made but that he has made it. And he is the unmade, the uncreated who has made all things. The image of the invisible God The firstborn, and that's the same word, the firstborn of every creature. And God explains that word, for by him were all things made. Now he's not the firstborn because 
He was the first created, but he's the firstborn because he gave life to all creation. He's the creator. He's the first begotten because he has all the dignity and all the power and all the glory. So it's nothing to do with any origin that the Son, divine Son has. For he is eternal. But he is the first begotten in terms of dignity. In power. In position. In glory. So it has nothing to do with the beginning of his being. I want you to know that. It means he is the heir of all things. Uh, this name is really the description of that definition in verse 2. Appointed heir of all things. He was appointed heir of all things before anything was made. The son was appointed heir of all things so that he could make all things. You're the heir of all things, my son, so you go and make all things. In that sense, he was the first begotten. He was the appointed heir to do that. The rightful owner of all things. Because of his relationship to the father, you see. You see, in the family, the firstborn is the heir. The firstborn gets all things from the father. In the family of God, Christ is the heir as the divine son. And all things are his and all things are in his possession. And he has authority to create all things. And he has authority to redeem all things. As the heir. As the firstborn. As the only begotten. So this is his native right as God's son. And the incarnation doesn't change that. The fact that he becomes a man doesn't change that. He's the first begotten still. He creates all things and is the heir of all that he creates. And he redeems all his people and he's the heir of all that he redeems. That man, that angels accompany in the second return, is the natural heir of everything that was ever created. And therefore, you angels, though you see him veiled in flesh, you must worship him because he's the first begotten. He has all the dignity of my only son. And to him I give all things. That's an excellent name, I can tell you. No creature ever got that name. No creature ever could. No creature ever shall. That's the name of our Lord. Our Saviour, the one who took bones and flesh and blood to save us. That's our Lord. Another name that he has that belongs to him as the natural heir is the name God. Yes, he gets that name too. He's God. And so we read in verse 8 and 9, But unto the Son he saith, Thy throne, O God. The Son is called God. O God, your throne is forever and ever. A scepter of righteousness is the scepter of thy kingdom. Thou hast loved righteousness and hated iniquity. Therefore, God, 
Thy God hath anointed thee with the oil of gladness above thy fellows. Now the quotation is from Psalm 45, verses 6 through to 7. And in that messianic psalm, the Messiah is clearly being addressed. And that Christ is one who has loved righteousness. He's one who has hated iniquity. Because he has loved righteousness and hated iniquity. And this was something he'd done all his life. Up until the point that he died. Because he's loved righteousness and hated iniquity. Therefore God. Your God. Anoints you with the oil of gladness above all your fellows. Now many take this anointing as a reference to the Jordan River anointing. But I do not think that that is the case. I think it is a reference to his receiving the Spirit of God when he was at God's right hand. When he's in the place of power and authority. After a life of loving righteousness and after a life of hating sin as a reward. He sits at the right hand of God and God is addressing him saying, Look, your throne is forever. You're going to reign forever. Your scepter is a righteous scepter. You're anointed with the oil of gladness above all. And that's whenever Christ received the gift of the Holy Ghost. And so he could pour out the Holy Ghost upon the church, upon the fellows, upon us as brethren. From the right hand of God. But as he sits there at the right hand of God, God addresses him. And he gives him the excellent name. The divine name. And therefore being by the right hand of God exalted. And having received of the Father the promise of the Holy Spirit. He hath shed forth this which ye now see and hear. And when the Comforter is come. Who will I will send unto you from the Father. I'll send him unto you. And so he pours out the Spirit. He gives the anointing. Because he himself has received the gift of the Holy Spirit. And he's received the gift as the Holy Spirit as the one who has been rewarded for his righteousness and is now sitting at the right hand of the Father. And the Father calls him God. Now if the Father calls him God, we can't hesitate to call him God. He's Christ our God. And his throne you'll see is an eternal throne. So his humanity is clearly set forth because he has loved righteousness and hated iniquity. He did all that as a man. But he is called God. As Isaiah himself said. His name shall be called the mighty God. Emmanuel Isaiah says. God with us. Angels don't have that name. They are spirits. They are ministers. But he is God on an eternal throne. They serve him. And he reigns over them. And they worship him who is God. Lastly, the other name is Lord. Verses 10 through to 12. Thou, Lord, in the beginning, has laid the foundation of the earth. This is what Christ has done. He's Lord, who's laid the foundation of the earth. The heavens are the work of his hands. They'll perish but thou remainest, they'll all wax old as a garment, as a vesture. Lord, you'll be the one who folds them up, and they'll be changed. But Lord, you're the same, your years shall never fail. The quotation is from Psalm 102, 
And clearly the one addressed here is Lord, Jehovah, the eternal God, the creating God, the unchanging Lord, the Lord who judges, who ends all things, who who wraps up the universe, who folds together the fabric of the cosmos. Thy Lord. The Son does that. He's Lord. Lord of all. Lord God. The angels are creatures. As the apostle says. Are they not? They're just ministering spirits. They're sent forth to do a wee job here and there. They're subservient. They're changing. Because they're ever increasing in knowledge and understanding. But the Son is the unchanging Lord. Whose years never change. Whose Divine essence never changes. The eternal Lord. The sovereign Lord. And then the last is also seen in that proof text from Psalm 110. Verses 13 and 14. To which of the angels said he at any time sit on my right hand. Until I make thine enemies thy footstool. You see he's the sovereign Lord. Who's reigning. Who's sitting at the right hand of God. And all his enemies are going to be made his footstool. And he's this as Messiah. Psalm 110, as I said, is the apostles being taxed before him. Everybody knows Psalm 110. David says, the Lord said unto my Lord, sit thou at my right hand. He's David's Lord. He's that excellent name of Lord. Sovereign one. The supreme one. The ruling, the reigning one. Though he's David's seed and David's offspring and comes from David's flesh. Yet he has the excellent name because he's David's Lord. And that was never said to angels, sit thou at my right hand. They're serving, he's sitting. They're serving the saved. He's the saviour of the saved. He's on the throne They surround the throne. He may look like a man. He does look like a man there in glory. But he has the dignity of God. He always has the name. You see. So never think anything about his humiliation that he suffered for us. Never think that any of that ever makes him lower or less than angels. Or even equal with them. No. He is Lord of all. Who has gone into the heavens. And is on the right hand of God. Angels and authorities and powers. Being made subject unto him. Far above all principality and power. And might. And any name that is named. Not only in this world. But in that world which is to come. He only has the excellent name. The name of God. The name of Son. The name of the first begotten. The name of Sovereign Lord. And this excellent name. That the Apostle has brought before us. It means to you child of God. Three dear precious things. It means first of all. That Jesus Christ is alive. He is alive and living. He is not dead but risen and ascended to 
as Peter says, let all the house of Israel know assuredly that God hath made that same Jesus whom you have crucified, both Lord and Christ. He's alive. He's living. That's what we learn from this excellent name. He can never perish. He can never lie under the power of death. He could never be rotting away, decayed in some tomb in Israel because he has the excellent name. It means he's alive and you can believe on him. It means also that he has made atonement for sin because this is why he came into the world. This is why he took human nature. This is why he suffered the humiliation. This is why he condescended to take away our sins. And he must have done that. He must have been successful in that mission and in that enterprise. Because now he's at the right hand of God. Ruling and reigning. He must have taken away sin then. And you can believe in his name. He couldn't have that excellent name if he hadn't taken away sin. If he hadn't loved righteousness and hated iniquity right to the end and died an atoning death. Oh, he has put away sin, the one who has this excellent name. And then the third thing is that he is almighty. He has this excellent name. He has this place at the right hand of God. He has the Spirit of God to pour out upon us sinners. He is the Lord who sits there reigning. He's almighty. As the apostle goes on to say later on in his epistle. Able to save to the uttermost. All them that come unto God. By him. Seeing he ever liveth. He has the excellent name. And therefore he has all the power. All the might to save you. So you can come to him. You can believe on him. You can believe in his name and you must, you must believe in his name. You must trust in his name always. You must find this excellent name, your refuge and your tower into which you run and hide from all your sins and from the judgment to come. There's no other name. And what an excellent name it is too. So you must come to that name. You must believe in that name. And in coming to that name, He will in no wise cast you out. For he has an excellent name. And he is faithful. And they that believe on him. Will be saved. He will save you. He will bring you near to God. He is able to do it. He shall do it. If you believe in him. If you trust in him. This excellent name.